In beginning this evening's talk <clears throat> with some words from the Buddha, the Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should retain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. And so now a question. Why metta or why practice metta? And certainly the Buddha did answer that question, but let's explore it a little bit. We'll explore a few possibilities in relationship to this question, beginning with an old story. It said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went to a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat. A forest that was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during their rains retreat and who were also very happy to keep the monks' alms bowls filled during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began practicing vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings, the forest devas who uh, lived there, became quite fearful of the monks. They felt quite put out of their home uh, when they saw the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two but seemed to be taking over their space. And so these forest-dwelling beings began to create various frightening sounds and sights and to emit some very distasteful order, odors, hoping that this would um, make the monks leave their forest. Well, soon enough, the monks... Uh, themselves became quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, broke their meditative concentration. Some even developed fever and pain and a dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. 
So they went to where the Buddha was staying and related their tale. And the, the Buddha responded to them in this way. He said, My beloved monks, go back to the same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that same forest again, saying that it was impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response to this was, Dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a true weapon of protection. And it's said that it was at this point that the Buddha began teaching metta, that he began offering them the metta practice. Out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks uh, didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so armed with the metta teaching and the practice, they went back to the forest and for a while continued experiencing various feelings of fear and anxiety. While at the same time, they very diligently and very virtuously practiced metta. Soon there were no more fearful sights, no more fearful sounds. And whereas the devas uh, had previously been hostile towards the monks, their anger and resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect, welcome, and even reverence began to be the devas' experience, along with the sense of being connected like like with family. And the inclination arose in the devas to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from uh, a particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest so that they could continue to practice uh, their meditation peacefully. It's said that all 500 of these monks at some point began practicing a med- uh, vipassana meditation again with metta then as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation peacefully, that all of them, all 500 of them, became arhats, became fully enlightened beings during that particular rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, the great strength of a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present, to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a heart, with a mind that's free of ill will. It's been called the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. It's what connects. It's the energy that keeps it all together. This capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our life, throughout our practice. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that not only do all of the other divine abidings, all of the other Brahma-viharas, these immeasurable capacities of heart spring from, the capacities of compassion, karuna, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita, and equanimity, upeka. But it's also the capacity of heart, the capacity of mind, that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness and patience all of these qualities being essential ground for the awakening process to take place one of the primary keys as we practice metta and all of the divine abidings is patience and all of our vipassana practice as well it's a very important key 
the Buddha talked a lot about patience, and Annie mentioned it uh, the other evening in her talk. The Buddha talked a lot about patience in a number of different ways. He said there's no Nibbana. There's no freedom higher than forbearance. There's no greater thing that exists than patience, he said. That's a, quite, a, quite a big statement. So what does this mean? In speaking of forbearance as the highest freedom, as Nibbana, it's not meant as a quality of grim endurance, a kind of putting up with it attitude or toughing it out attitude. This is not what the Buddha meant by patience. It's about the quality of willingness, qualities of softness and acceptance, forbearance in this sense, softness, receptivity, willingness, acceptance. This is patience. It's not important to note that it's not about being passively walked over. Not that kind of forbearance, not that kind of willingness. It's a patience that brings us to abide in our life, which includes our meditation practice, in a way that allows us to approach and open to, to really be fully present with each moment, with whatever's unfolding in each moment to be really fully present with an openness, a respect, and an honoring of the moment. No matter what we're facing in the mind, in the body, in the heart, and no matter what's coming to us from the world around us. So to forbear in this sense. This is what the Buddha was talking about, and what I sometimes call a radical acceptance. This is patience. The practice of metta is a very powerful way, a very powerful tool of introducing us, introducing our heart, introducing our mind to patience. A very clear way of cultivating a patient, loving heart. And really coming to know very deeply in an immediate experiential way that this is an advantage. This is a great benefit in our life. A number of years ago, when I was the resident teacher at the Insight Meditation Society, the resident teacher for staff, we would have a, a weekly Dharma meeting, Dharma program on various topics. For a few weeks, we explored patience. And I'd like to share some of what the staff of the Insight Meditation uh, Center uh, said. And I asked them uh, that whatever was shared be from their experience, that it not be from a kind of meandering uh, intellectual approach. So here are some of their words. Patience feels like body-mind calm, quietude, serenity. Someone said smoothness. Someone else said persevering, openness, peace. Someone said friendliness. Another person said okayness, satisfactoriness, ease. Another said patience is the highest form of devotion. Then I asked them, what does impatience feel like? What's that experience? Someone said war, restlessness, edginess, sometimes anger, heat, agitation, wanting, irritation, uneasiness, not being able to stand it, not being able to bear it, unfriendliness, someone said. Both of these, these experiences, patience and impatience, we know them both. All of us know them both. Maybe we haven't explored them in quite the same detail that we did over those weeks at the meditation center, but we certainly know them both. 
this quality of patience implies faith. Not a blind faith, but a wise faith. A kind of we'll see, a kind of I don't know attitude. And also a faith that we're doing our best. A term that describes uh, an experience of patience that I like quite a lot is hastening slowly. Hastening slowly. The writer uh, Rainier Maria Maria Rilke described uh, patience in a very beautiful way. He said this, There is here no measuring with time. No year matters. And ten years are nothing. Being an artist means not reckoning and counting. And if you don't already know, this uh, meditation is an art. (laughs) Being an artist means not reckoning and counting, but ripening like the tree, which doesn't force its its sap and stands confident in the storms of spring without fear that after them may come no summer. It does come. But it comes only to the patient who are there as though eternity lay before them, so unconcernedly still and wide. I learn it daily, and sometimes with pain, to which I am grateful. Patience is everything. And so as we cultivate our practice and live more patiently as we're more and more still and wide and at the same time determined it's inevitable that there will be an increase of joy an increase of peace an increase of fearlessness and a growing and greater ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life it's inevitable When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary written character for love, Chinese written character for love, was developed out of two ancient pictographs or two symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta love in contemporary Chinese is breath through the heart. One of my Burmese teachers, Sado Pandita, says that most people think everything begins and ends here. And he knocks himself on the head. And then he goes on to say, but I've been checking for a long, long time. He's something like 86 or something now. So he's been a monk since he's been a young boy. So he has been checking. We can trust he's been checking for a long time. He said, I've been checking for a long, long time. And I found out that everything begins and ends here. And he thumps himself at his chest, on his chest at the heart center. Everything begins and ends here. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And using the metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. Metta is the practice of the heart. It's the heart of practice. So another question, what is it? One one definition speaks of it as non-ill will. 
the absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, our body, our mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others, no aversion towards others, and no comparing ourselves in relationship to others, no comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment, no depreciation of others. The absence of ill will. How often might we, during this retreat, in fact, have thought uh, uh, of the person next to us or maybe on the other side of the room, how often might we think that their practice is much better than ours? How still, how silent, how enlightened that person is. Or maybe we thought how inferior their practice is towards ours, or compared to ours, and felt the judgment, well, look at that person, they're nodding, they're moving. This isn't metta, as I'm sure you're well aware of. We're creating a separation, we're creating a me and another. And the mind, the heart, with these comparisons, is contracted. And maybe surprisingly, metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we're identified with and attached to in either a positive or a negative way, as our self, our body, our thoughts, our ideas, our opinions, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A mind filled with metta, a heart filled with metta, has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings. Not only those who we're close to in our lives, those who it's easy to care about, or those who might be useful or amusing or pleasing to us in some way. But the possibility of what sometimes is called an immeasurable impartiality, this capacity of being able to connect and care for, connect with and care for any being. And this is from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair, but when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The heart, the mind of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, patience, acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously in the same moment. As you practice in the very specific ways that you are in this retreat, and as it develops and grows itself, through our practice of mindful awareness, through our practice of immediate presence, there's a very natural unfolding, a natural ripening of patience, of confidence, of fearlessness, of trust and of a sense of well-being. 
There's a natural ripening, a natural opening into a loving heart that contains all of these qualities. The various flavors of ill will, such as hostility or judgment or anger, hatred, dislike, fear, that we've experienced toward ourselves and towards others, begins to subside. The practice of metta actually weakens these states. In a certain sense, we could describe metta as secluding or cloistering the heart, the mind, from anger, from fear. In its deepest strength, in the deepest strength of its its medicine, metta medicine, it dismantles, it unwinds, it unbinds the heart from states of anger, states of fear, states of judgment, states of separation. These strong energies that move through our mind, through our heart, through our body, begin to weaken, begin to fade under this strong light, under the strong medicine of a loving heart. The more moments of metta, the less moments of fear, of worry, of anxiety, of anger. It's actually not possible to feel unconditional friendship, unconditional kindness, unconditional love, and fear simultaneously. So, the more moments of metta, the less moments of fear, anger, hatred. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, and he, as some of you probably know, he taught through dialogue with his students. Someone once asked him, what can make me love? And his answer was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. And so we begin our metta practice with ourself. With all of our moods, all of our feelings that might be difficult, difficult experiences in the body, difficult experiences in the mind, with beautiful feelings, beautiful experiences as well, and not demanding that they not be here, and not demanding that they not go away. Our habit, of course, is to demand that they not be here if it's not comfortable, if it's not pleasant, or to demand that they stay, don't leave us, if it's pleasant and if it's comfortable. Emotions, sensations, feelings, thoughts quite naturally arise and naturally go away. I mean, you don't feel anger all of the time, do you? You're not fearful every single second, are you? You don't feel delight continuously, do you? It comes, it goes. The heart of metta is practicing with what could be called a radical acceptance with how things are. The nature of experience is that it comes and goes. Struggling with with what comes and goes, fighting with it, trying to get rid of it, for instance, actually perpetuates it. We get stuck in it as we struggle with it, as we fight with it as we try to push it away. I think of it as Velcro practice. Can't let go. And an important point uh, about metta practice is that it's not about being idealistic. It's not about attachment to an ideal of loving-kindness. The purification of the heart, the purification of the mind occurs via being very honest with ourselves, 
by being willing to accept with this attitude of metta. Accept the negative states, the reactions, the fears, the irritations that arise. Practice is a learning to abide in a sense of well-being, meaning developing a sense of acceptance, patience, non-criticism towards the body, the conditions that arise in the mind, the habits, memories, whether they're good or whether they're bad, and our reactions by allowing them to be as they are in the moment. They just simply are as they are. It just simply is as it is in this moment. So from this perspective, we could say it's not about working to attain something, but rather allowing the practice of metta to be metta itself. I think most of us, interestingly enough, with a dear friend, when we're with a dear friend, we don't usually demand that they stop feeling whatever it is they're feeling. Especially if they're being very honest with us and sharing their feelings with us. We usually uh, treat our friends kindly. We listen, we treat them with respect and care. Can we also do this with ourselves? for ourselves. Metta and wisdom, understanding, arise when we begin to accept all of the different beings, we could say, both within ourselves and outside of ourselves, rather than trying to manipulate or ignoring these beings. Unconditional love is deep understanding. Unconditional love is wisdom. Understanding, wisdom, is unconditional love. Something that was amazing and so important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which maybe we don't agree with or connect with beings who act in ways that maybe we don't condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level, but not necessarily approving. With metta, there aren't any favorites, not favoring one over another. So metta is not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting now for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart, broken apart, long ago. There have been periods throughout human history up until this very moment where there's been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, more times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been or is increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary in our world. Someone once said, 
There are those who set fires to the world. We are in danger. There is no time to go slowly. There is no time not to love. There is no time not to love. And the Buddha said it perfectly. He said, hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus of our thoughts, our words, and our actions, if our thoughts, our words, and actions spring from metta, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our small lives even in ways that we may never, never know. I'd like to spend a few moments now exploring some of the expectations that we, uh, of what we might think metta is supposed to be. I think that many people expect metta to be a feeling, a familiar feeling. We look for some particular felt sense and of course our looking our expectation is based on something that we're familiar with it's pretty hard in fact probably impossible to look for something that we don't know to look for something that we've never experienced and to look for something that maybe we have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving kindness or unconditional friendship metta Sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we actually can get caught, we can get stuck in expecting this. It's actually quite limiting. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not romantic. These are two both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind that's free from ill will, that's free from greed, free from fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the heart, the mind of stillness, the heart, the mind of peacefulness. It's in the absence of greed, in the absence of any kind of aversion. It's in, the ab, in the, it's in the abiding stillness and the peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of and are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and to connect with others. To connect directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, with a heart that's free of ill will. And we could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many, many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through, and let go of along the way of our practice. I've personally found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are very essential if our practice is to continue to unfold and reap its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a very beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar, that demonstrates this very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's chief disciples, his two chief disciples, and he was foremost in 
terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. This story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rains retreat in their rainy, rainy season. The monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and their various responsibilities, uh, going off to other places. And this is the story, the sutta. Sariputta's lion's roar. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove and at Anathapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said to him, Lord, I have completed the rains retreat at Savati and I wish to leave for a country journey. The Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Blessed One called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. And the monk did as he was bidden. And the venerable Sariputta came and responded saying, Yes, friend. Then the venerable Mahamogalana and the venerable Ananda, taking the keys, went around to all the monk's lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. When he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave twelve years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Rahula was the Buddha's son. When he was eighteen years old, you taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dug, dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But that is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him, and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced like the water, People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things spoiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. And yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, and thinking might might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. 
Lord, I have practiced like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for that, the air has no revulsion, loathing or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movements of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense for which I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, untruthfully. Let the Blessed One in the Sangha accept my admission and the offense of the offense and pardon me. I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded to this monk. Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It is a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. Then he turned to the Venerable Sariputta. The Buddha turned to the Venerable Sariputta, saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. The Buddha didn't express humor too often but every now and then (laughs) and Sariputta said I shall forgive him Lord if this revered monk also asks for my pardon as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding may he too forgive me Sariputta and the accusing monk then bowed three three times to each other and reconciled For many of us, there are points along the way of our practice where the specific direction of unconditional loving kindness needs to be turned around towards ourselves. And this isn't always easy to do or to accept once we begin to do it because of what might be strong conditioning that tells us or told us that we're unworthy or that we're not lovable. Or that it's selfish to love ourselves. We may have taken on and unwittingly carried on and become very identified with these attitudes, these relationships to ourself as who we think we are, and done it over and over and over again. Taken on and taken in some karma that's been moving through our family, through our culture for maybe years and years, maybe generations. At some point along along the way of our practice, we wake up to knowing that, in fact, we have a choice. This aspect of waking up sometimes coming through some strong dukkha. Or it may come through some degree of understanding, insight, that our predicament is actually unnecessary. We wake up to knowing that we don't have to be run by any particular karmic predicament. We have a choice to step out or step off the karmic wheel, step out of the karmic predicament. At points along the way of our practice, we wake up to the fact that we can change our mind, change our heart, and that in fact our mind, our heart is changing through our practice. 
Through my childhood, my mother told me many, many times, you can't love another unless you love yourself. And in my early years, I didn't at all understand what this meant. Though somehow, as it does uh, with children in their receiving of a wise teaching, it kind of worked its way into my heart, into my mind. And through the years of metta and vipassana practice, I've come to know what this means and to know that, in fact, it's true. Our practice directs us towards being selfish, so to say, in the right way. Directing us towards connecting and accepting how it is in any given moment in our body and in our mind. Without this capacity to connect and accept, we'll never be able to see the true nature of things. And instead be connecting with some imaginary experience, some idea of what's occurring but not with what's actually, truly happening. And again, it takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really, truly practice. And it sometimes takes a lot of metta energy directed towards ourself to be open to, to be with, and to clearly see things as they are. Metta doesn't cover over anger or fear or jealousy or irritation. Metta changes our mind. Practice is about making the choice to transform the heart, to transform the mind so that we embody love. It actually opens the heart to make the choice to not turn away, to not distract ourselves or pretend anything, but to stay still, to be here, be present in relationship with what is. It's a choice to see and experience things just as they are with the natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year for two months and then for one month the second year. And one student who stayed for the whole two months of practice that first year, he was a man in his early 40s, a very successful big city, a businessman from Warsaw. He had been diligently practicing Zen and Karate uh, and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to the two-month Vipassana Metta retreat. He'd grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered, father and uncle and living as he put it with a heart burning with fear much of the time throughout his childhood with the fear in fact still present in his adult life but much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habit of thought words and actions of that same ill temper He described himself as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uncomfortable to him as his practice developed and deepened. But And very much unlike his father and his uncle, he'd begun to see himself much more clearly through his martial arts practices and through his interest in Buddhism and meditation. In being introduced uh, to the metta teachings and practice, he found himself very interested and attracted. And at some point uh, during this, that first year of two months of practice, he decided to take on the phrase, a metta phrase, may I love myself completely just as I am in the present moment. He t- decided to take it on as his practice for the whole next year after he returned home to Warsaw. And because of his Zen training, he created a kind of koan, a question that can't be answered in any linear, uh, logical kind of ordinary way. He created a koan for himself by changing one word of this phrase. He changed the word may I to can I. Can I love myself completely just as I am 
in this present moment. He silently said this koan over and over and over again during his sitting practice, after he got home, in situations uh, at work with his employees, at home with his family. He said whenever he felt angry, whenever he would start to feel enraged, he said that he often would remember to stop for just a second, be still for just a few seconds, and then silently repeat this koan. He said even in the midst of anger sometimes. And he said more often as he, as the year went on, he remembered to, he remembered the practice just as the feelings of anger would begin to arise. Which he said when he would say the koan, he found that the anger would dissolve most often quite quickly. The next year he came back uh, to the retreat to sit again for a month. And there had been quite an enormous transformation in this man. Our human heart is naturally, it's intuitively loving and caring. So from this perspective, our practice isn't about working to get, isn't about working to attain something, but rather allowing the mind, allowing the heart through our practice, be it metta or vipassana practice, allowing the heart to be loving kindness itself. So from this perspective, we can turn right around and face awareness itself and ask, who loves? Who loves? There is metta. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not who I am. It belongs to no one. And as Krishnamurti said, it's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar. And it's inexhaustible. As we persevere with our practice, there's a deepening self-confidence, self-respect, and patience. A gentle yet very powerful strength and a growing and more pervasive selflessness that begins to manifest and mature. Our capacity to meet the myriad facets of life and the various vicissitudes of life, to meet them face on with sensitivity and deeper wisdom expands. A while ago I read a book that was about and by a 102-year-old black man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family, so he never attended school and he never learned how to read, until at the age of 98, he decided to attend a literacy program. And he learned how to read at the age of 98, and then wrote a book about himself. It's amazing, it's a very amazing and inspiring and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and to survive in it. So I'd like to uh, share a little bit of his book with you. At one point, George is having a conversation with a man named Richard, who was the person who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And George says, as George says, and doing just fine. (laughs) And this is Richard speaking. You're not really alone. People come and call. People call and come all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself. But no, you're not alone. George, that's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. 
George. That's right, it all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy with what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can. And if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. And so just a little bit more from our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. And a little background, a little bit more background. For much of his life, he endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South because of growing up in the South and especially in East Texas. During the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually, the book begins when George was eight years old, as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was kind of his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on the shelf above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace, when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that there was for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in the kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I didn't know. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted to. But I weren't no animal. I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch that I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch uh, on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked, looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, You don't need to come back anymore. And I said, That's right. I don't need to. And George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways that you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held on to, much of what we've grasped often very tightly. 
There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken on and taken in as mine, as me, as I am, as this is me. It's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times. But it's very, very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power behind his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The Buddha spoke about the fact that for seven years he cultivated loving kindness. He said that having cultivated a heart full of loving kindness for seven years, he didn't return to this world, meaning he didn't return to the inner world based on clinging and aversion. And so closing the talk with an instruction from the Buddha. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it. Store it up. And thoroughly set it going. And let's sit for just a moment. 